0: Uh, We're going to finish chapter 1 today and talk about the marks of a good church. As we started uh, 1 Thessalonians at the beginning of the new year, I had intended to actually preach chapter 1 in one fell swoop. But as we have gone along, we've slowed down. As we've seen four themes emerge that tell us what a good church is, if you were looking for a new church or trying to say, how do I know if I'm in a good one? What would be some uh, words that could kind of summarize and categorize what I should be looking for in the four words that we've given are grace, gratitude, gospel, and growth. As if um, you have a church, if you don't start with the grace of God, you don't have a church because we're sinners saved by grace. And so if you have a church where there is no grace, uh, where there is uh, some idea that we work our way to God, we work our way to heaven, uh, we do things in our own might, then you don't have a church. You have something other. Uh, so it starts by the grace of God, but then it's also um, it's, it's known for gratitude, as in when the people recognize they are works of God's grace and it's His work in them, it fills them with gratitude. And if you think about being in a church that uh, doesn't have gratitude, that'd probably be a miserable place to be. Uh, it's going to get nasty pretty fast because it's going to be about us and not about looking out and seeing the good in God's grace and His work in people's lives. It's going to be who's better than who and complaining and backbiting and division If you don't have a church next, uh, understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, you may have started by grace and continued in gratitude, but if the gospel is lost, eventually the church will die. Because how does the church continue to grow? It grows as more people come to Christ and are added to it. So if the gospel has gone, your church is going. And then last, what we'll see here this morning is spiritual growth. As you get those other things, those other things right, if, if we recognize that a good church is a work of God's grace that leads to gratitude in God's people for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should produce spiritual growth as the effect, as the result. And that's really where we'll end today in verses 6-10. to 10. Seeing that spiritual growth in in the people of God is kind of the the encompassing reality, the totality of those three other marks of a good church working in the way that they should. By the end of it, you look around and say, we see some growth here. Then you could talk about numerical growth, maybe, but we're talking about maturation of a person. Going from a babe in Christ, a new believer, and, and maturing. And to the point where you're seeing replication, you're seeing discipleship, imitation, others following others as they follow Christ. And that's really what's at the heart of Paul's uh, final encouragement to this good church that he loves, that he calls his joy and his crown, his glory. Well, why does he say all those things? Because the marks of a uh, a growing church, people maturing spiritually in Christ are in verses six to 10, and we'll see four of them today. So let me read it and then we will unpack it. Starting in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes to this church, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, To whom much is given, Jesus said, much will be required. So, Father, give us much today for your glory and our good. Last week, we left off with uh, Paul highlighting the proof that was in the preaching and living of his own life in verse 5. He hasn't actually spoken directly to the Thessalonians and their spiritual growth, but in verse 5, he leaves off before he moves into talking about them. He, he highlights in verse 5 there how the gospel came to them. So there's that mark of a good church, the gospel. And how it came was in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And he's talking about himself, not them. He's saying, I know what happened when I came to you in Acts 17, 1 to 9. This was not me coming with with some wise sounding speech, some rhetoric. I I wasn't fooling you with some message, there was no bait and switch. I preached to you the gospel and I know it because I felt it. I had the full conviction that I'm laying my life on the line for this. And that's fine with me because I know what I signed up for. And that's how he testifies to the work in his own life. Uh, And then he turns on them in verse 5 and says, And you know what kind of man I prove to be among you. And we talked about last week the principle of the presence that we have with people. That leadership is influence. And that positional authority, though it may work in the immediate, in the long run the greatest impact you'll have on somebody else's life is in the relational ministry you have with them. In the long run. And so Paul doesn't immediately cut to, I'm an apostle, listen up. He says, look at your own lives. Look at the change that was in you and what you saw in me. It added up. That I wasn't preaching one thing and practicing something else. As uh, theologian John Stott said, we need to look like what we are talking about. Right? If we're telling people about Christ, we need to look like Him. For people to what? Believe in the credibility of the transformation. That If we're saying the gospel will change you, they see that change in us. So that's where he leaves off in verse 5. And then in 6 to 10, he's going to talk about the spiritual growth he has seen in them. Now, when I walk us through these verses, this isn't meant to be uh, chronological as in the sense, first you're going to see, first you're afflicted, and, and then you're, you imitate, and then you proclaim, and then you anticipate. Don't, don't take it as such. I'm just going to move through these verses as they're written. But these four ideas that are around, how do we know there's spiritual growth in us or in the people around us? We should see affliction for Christ, imitation of Christ, proclamation of Christ, and anticipation of Christ. Those four things mark a true believer's growth in Christ. But I'm not, as I'm going through these verses, not trying to say you got to start here with affliction. It doesn't always start that way, but it's, it's there. It'll come. And when it comes, that's how you know you have the real thing. So let's go to verse six and see that. Paul says to these believers, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's discipleship. First Corinthians 11:1, Imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. That's not a program. And we got lots of them at this church. One's going on right now. We're up, teenagers are up in the mountains. What are we doing that for? Discipleship, time with them. All throughout the weekends. There's a Titus 2 women's discipleship class going on right now. Equipping them. There's a global missions class going on. Trying to equip people for the mission to go to the ends of the earth. At the end of the day, those are all just means to the same end. To be a church of disciple makers. It's got to be, you're with them, you're around them. You're not just teaching it, you're living it. And Paul says to them, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Ultimately, all those are, are going in one direction, which is the imitation of Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is. It's being like Jesus. Discipling is just teaching someone else to be like him, just so they could see it in person. But what is it exactly they were imitating? Well, our first point is spiritual growth, their spiritual growth that Paul remembers. The first thing that he recalls about them that gives him confidence that they haven't fallen away is that they imitated what? Receiving the Word of God in tribulation and not just grinning and bearing it. What does it say? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's a mark of spiritual growth. That when the gospel came to to Thessalonica, and you can turn back to Acts 17 to see this. It came and it came in power, as Paul said. Acts 17, they arrive, he, Silas, and Timothy... They' reasoning for three weeks in a row in the Sabbath, he goes right to the synagogues. He's going to talk to them about who the Messiah is, and he just lays it out nice and clear in verse three, I explained Christ. I told him that he had to suffer and be rejected and rise again from the dead. and because he did that, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This is a good start. This is a church planter's dream. Verse four, some of them were persuaded. who's the some of them? Some of the Jews. But not just them, a large number of God-fearing Greeks, the pagans, and a number of the leading women, the important people, the leaders in, the, in this community. That's a great start. But look what's following quickly on its heels, verse 5, but the Jews, and he's now referring to those who didn't turn to Christ, became jealous, and that's where they formed the mob, And that's where they attacked the house of Jason, and they dragged Jason out, but they found out that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, uh, they already went ahead. We don't exactly understand the reason why, but they probably thought, hey, if we're going to keep this mission going, it seems good for the Lord for us to move on. Sometimes Paul would do it, sometimes he didn't. But this, this word that he's talking about that they received back in 1 Thessalonians, they received it in tribulation. And receiving it just means that they accepted it. Um, a definition for how that looks. What does it mean to receive the word of God down in verses 9 and 10? What kind of reception we had with you? Here's, here's how they received it. They turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's conversion. Simply stated, that's how they received the word in much tribulation. They even knew the, that the affliction was coming, they knew the suffering was going to come, and they received it nonetheless. And they proved it because even the things that they used to do that would have had them uh, socially acceptable in their town, they might have even prospered because of it, they were willing to say, I'll walk away from that because I'm walking to Christ because He's the Messiah and He's my Savior, He's my Lord, and I'm here to serve Him. But it wasn't in the absence of affliction that they did this, that they made this profession of faith. It was in the what? In the midst of it, in much tribulation. That word is a word uh, for something being pressed in upon. In Paul's time, other Greek writers would have used it sometimes describing a ship that has to get through some narrow passageway, like where it seems like the walls are coming in and there's rocks to avoid and the seas are choppy and it causes much distress. You know, we might use the phrase in dire straits. That's what he's saying. That's how the tribulation came to them. And you would think if Paul's telling them on the front end, as he did back in Acts 17, the Christ had to suffer, guess what we're going to have to do? We're going to suffer. That was part of Paul's testimony. I mean, if you go back to the book of Acts, from the, from the beginning when he is converted, and then he's told to go meet this man named Ananias, and he's waiting for him, and the Lord comes to Ananias, and he says, I have a message for you, Ananias, because Ananias is objecting, saying, wait, I've heard of this Saul guy, Acts chapter 9, um, how he does much harm to your saints. This is what Christ told Ananias about Paul who was still Saul at the time. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And here's this is, this is the banner that's going to hang over Paul's life from the moment he comes to Christ. Acts 9.16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's what Paul knew about his life from the start. Was it going to get any easier? It wasn't, because we see the testimony of him getting out of, thrown out of towns like Philippi in Acts 16. Or when he comes back to talk to the elders in in Acts 20. What does he say about them there? The Holy Spirit, Acts 20, verse 23. The Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So whether it was at the beginning of his conversion he was going to know that he had to suffer for the name of Christ, whether it's in the middle of his ministry where people are coming to Christ and you think maybe that, that, uh, okay, God would take his foot off the gas and give Paul a little bit of relief. And he says, no, the Holy Spirit actually tells me in every city, I'm going to run into some kind of affliction for the name of Christ. And then if you look over in Acts 21, when he is going to go back to Jerusalem and he's in Caesarea and in the house of Philip the Evangelist, and a prophet comes and says, "Paul, the Holy Spirit says, "You're going to be bound and delivered to the Gentiles. And the residents, the Christians there, are begging him not to go to Jerusalem." This is Paul's response, Acts 21:13, "What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? You're making this harder than it needs to be. Why?" For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of Jesus Christ. Do you think Paul knew what he signed up for? From the beginning to the end, he was a marked man. And he's telling these Thessalonians, you that's what you imitated in us. Because I told you from the beginning, this is what's going to happen. It may not happen immediately, but it's going to happen eventually. You will suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to sign up for that? That was his message to them. And we have to ask ourselves the question today, is suffering for Christ's name part of our deal? I'm talking about suffering for the name of Christ. I'm not not making light of suffering or affliction in life common to man. Right? Because the sun can shine on the believer or the unbeliever. Or the rain could fall on the believer or the unbeliever. And and there's general suffering in, in a fallen world. Life in a broken place. That happens. What Paul is talking about here, this tribulation that they received the word, and this was the affliction that a person is going to get eventually for what? Being willing to take the name of Jesus Christ and say, My allegiance is to him. Christ is Lord. Not at this time Caesar, because that's what was getting the Jews to get the Greeks and the Gentiles mad. Acts seventeen, seven, they're saying that there's another king. Contrary to the decrees of Caesar, there's another king and it's Jesus. That's what's going to get them in trouble. What brings that on our lives? Or are we kind of, um, I mean, are we playing it safe? I mean, we know how. Uh, it's not beyond any of us that in you know Western Christianity, we have it good comparative to the rest of Christian history, especially the early church. But throughout history, we, we've lived in a really golden era, if you want to call it that, for the freedoms that we can enjoy to worship God without fear of affliction. Now, you take that out into the marketplace, into your job, to your neighbor, that's where you got to make the choice, isn't it? Am I going to speak up? Am I going to stay quiet? Do I have the greatest news in the world to share with this person? But is it also going to call them out? Is it going to expose their sin and their need for a Savior? That's what we have to ask ourselves when it comes down to suffering for the name of Christ. What's it going to cost us? But what we can't do is leave that out at the beginning. And offer a gospel devoid of any call to what? Take up your cross and die. Die to self. You're, hiding a big, you're, you're holding back a big part of the reality, aren't you? If that's the gospel we offer people. All the benefits, right? Eternal life, heaven, all this good. And it's all good and it's all true. But you can leaving an important part out. When I was up at the retreat yesterday, uh, the sessions that Justin is teaching and doing a fantastic job on are about heaven. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to Justin teach on heaven yesterday morning. And uh, I'm looking around and these kids, they're having a good time. That's what retreats should be. I'm not saying we should go up there and, like, all right, we're gonna make you sleep out in the five-degree snow to suffer for Christ. And whoever survives is the real Christian. The rest of you are heathens. You know? No, that's not what we do. We, we, we make it a good time. We want them to see the joy of the Lord in us as leaders. But I'm sitting there listening to Justin teach on heaven, and he's he's in Revelation 21. No more tears. No more afflictions, no more suffering, new heaven, new earth. And he's he's helping them see, man, this is going to be great. Uh, The things we love here that are good and praiseworthy, we're going to have there. And I'm just going, man, I get why the second soil of the parables in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 and Luke 8, When you don't let them know that there's a cost to following Christ and you just sell it, that it's all good. I was sitting there thinking, there's no reason anybody in this room listening to Justin speak should not want to accept Jesus Christ. If the sufferings left out, what do you got to lose? You only have everything to gain if you put it that way. And, and there's nothing new under the sun, having been around youth ministry for 30 years, one as a participant, as a youth pastor, and as one that can't hang the cleats up and I have to keep going back for more punishment. I mean, that's a part of it. It's, it. There's a joy to youth ministry. because There's a joy to youthfulness, isn't there? I mean, life's in front of you. And if you're told on the front end, hey, but here's what's going to come with this. You want to follow Jesus Christ, you may go back to your school on Monday and, and you tell people that you turned from your old way of life and you're following Christ. You might get what? You might get mocked, mistreated, left out. But then I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm going, half these kids are probably going to HCA. They're going to get an A on their test for going back and saying that. Some suffering, huh? I'm not saying HCA is a perfect place. Or they go back to home because they're homeschooled. Is there going to be a lot of affliction there? No, they're going to come home and say, oh, I accepted the Lord. Great, that's wonderful. And we should say that. But the reality is, on the front end of telling people what it's going to cost them to follow Christ, could be, according to Paul, could cost you your life. So you got to be willing to say, I put my life on the table now. That's what I'm signing up for. Because it's worth it. Because he's worth it. Because he died for me. That's what I get. I'm in. But you put that on the table on the front end with some people, and they walk away. When you tell them they got to walk away, you can't follow Christ and still have your old life, because verse ten says, "You're, you're, you're." Verse nine, you're turning from the idols that you used to love. First and foremost, what idol? Me, the idol of Adam, the idol of you. It says, "I want what I want, and I need to get what I need to get out of this life." And that first idol that has to be destroyed is self-preservation. Death to self, right? I mean, that's it. you got to tell people that on the front end. That's what following Christ requires. It may not show up immediately, but it's part of the agreement. Because, and it's just simplified in this simple statement about Jesus Christ, He's not just Savior, He's what? He's Lord. What's that mean? He's your master. What's that mean? You're a slave. That word down here in verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve, that's the word for slave, doulo. Dulos is the noun. Dulo is the verb. So he's now your new master. You, whatever he says goes. So you tell them that. But you say, man, it's worth it. It's worth it for eternal life. Because Christ never said, oh, I'm going to give you an easy life. He promised eternal life. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a worry-free life. I'm going to give you a worthwhile life. I'm going to give you an earthly, prosperous life. No, I'm going to give you blessings in the heavenlies that will last forever. That's what you get by giving up your life to follow me. That's the, that's, the, that's the good news of the gospel, that He takes my sin, He takes my guilt, He takes my wrath, the punishment, the wrath that abides in me, and He forgives me by His work on the cross, by His death and resurrection. I'm free, but now I'm free to be His slave. And that's the truth of the gospel. If you haven't heard it explained that way, something's been left out with you. You've been told about Jesus as Savior, but not about Lord. Savior, does He save us, rescue us from the wrath to come? He does. But what are we doing in the meantime? We're serving our living God. And that's what Paul saw in these people. And he said, you received it with joy. That's the fruit of the Spirit in them back in verse 6. It wasn't like you you were bemoaning this. You were rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. And you can go back in the book of Acts and you can see how joy and suffering for the name of Christ are often hand in hand. Acts chapter 5, right from the beginning. What did the apostles do? They were told, you, gotta, you guys got to stop preaching. You, you got to shut it down. And they're not going to do it. And they get imprisoned when the council in Jerusalem comes together. And they're witnessing and they're saying, hey, we're, we're going to keep preaching Christ. We're witnesses to him. He says in Acts, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. And so, by verse 40, the council in Jerusalem, uh, they call the apostles in, they flog them, they order them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they release them. And then what's coming right after that suffering? Right from the beginning, verse 41, the disciples went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy. Why did they rejoice? Not because they're gluttons for punishment. It occurred to them that the fact that, that we just got beat up and kicked out. For the name of Christ means we're worthy. And it's not because of any righteousness of our own. It's His. And if He was willing to do this for me, I'm willing to take it for Him. That's 1 Peter language, isn't it? You, you go through trials of various kinds, but you rejoice with a joy inexpressible. Though you not, have not seen Him, you, you love Him. Because they are considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. That's the Paul point Paul is making here. So, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's that looking like in our life? And look, the reality is, um, sometimes you come to Christ early in life and, and you may not have faced that affliction right away. So, nobody's judging you for that. Depending on your circumstances, maybe being raised in a Christian home, raised in a good church, whatever it was, the, the affliction wasn't there right away, but it's going to come. It's going to come. Are you ready for it? And if it has come in your life, can you actually now look back and see those are, those are marks along the path that give credibility to my testimony Then when it did cost me something, when I did get laughed, when I did get mocked, when I did, whatever that was, you look back and as painful as that was, there's a party that goes, I was considered worthy for the gospel, for the name of Christ. It cost me something. And that gives you what? That gives you confidence that you got the real thing. Rather than every time it might have cost you something you kind of found a way to slip out of the room duck your head get quiet makes you maybe think twice or maybe maybe this is new information to you and say hey Adam I do believe I'm in Christ but man I've had the wrong impression of what I get out of this deal because I thought it was going to be easy street it was Martin Luther who said if our Christ was was the one who was willing to take the crown of thorns should we expect the bouquet of roses is that what we should get we get all the rewards. He gets all the punishment. We get the reward of his righteousness. What more can we want? That's his first point. Suffering for Christ is a mark of spiritual growth. Then he moves in verse 7 into spiritual growth is seen in our imitation of Christ. Now this builds off of verse 6. Like I said, this, this isn't like first affliction, then imitation. All the, this imitation was happening as they're suffering. But there was an imitation of Christ here. Christ suffered. They were going to suffer. So much so that it wasn't just that they followed Paul's lead. They became an example, verse 7, to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. This is miles around Thessalonica. Whatever attacks were happening on Christians, they were right there at the front of the line. And this is something that Paul reminds them. You knew from the beginning when we came and preached to you guys. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. When you received the word of God, you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Then verse 14 of chapter 2. For you, brothers, became imitators of the, not just Paul, Silas, Timothy. Look what he says. You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, in the whole Judean countryside. Why could I say you became imitators of them? For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen as those Christians did from the Jews. And then he takes it back to Christ. Why are we suffering? Because verse 15, those are the ones who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So he's saying, look, you're just imitating and following in the path that I've been through, the apostles, the churches in Judea from the beginning. Because that's, you know, now we're talking 20 years since Christ went back. The gospel starts in Jerusalem, Judea, and goes out to what? The ends of the earth. He's saying now it's hit here 20 years later. Look, there's, this isn't anything new. This, this is you just imitating your Savior, your Lord. You're, you're right where you should be when this is happening. And it's seen in the imitation of Christ. But as I mentioned before, that a disciple needs they need somebody to follow. They need an example to see, and that's what, that's what Paul was to them. He was their example, and now they're being an example to others. So maybe for us this morning, uh, we think about how powerful it was that in Paul's few months and here in Thessalonica, that his, his example of, res, of preaching the gospel and living it out in front of them was so powerful that in just a few months, they were able to replicate it. Are you living your life with that same potency, you know, that, that same <sighs> fervency, that same zeal that if somebody were around you just for a few months, they would walk away more like Christ that, because it was rubbing off on them because it's that real to you. I mean, that, that's the mark of discipleship. You leave your mark on another person. In fact, that word example is, is a word back in Paul's time for something that strikes a blow so much so to leave an imprint, a mark. So whose mark has been left on you and who are you leaving a mark on someone else? That's what discipleship does. That's how the church grows. That's how you know you got the real thing. So can you look in your life right now and see, hey, I've got some people that have been pouring into me. I'm not who I am apart from the grace of God, but I am who I am because some people have poured into me. And I can look back at my own testimony and see throughout my life. Some guys I've only had a few years, maybe even a few months there was something about their life that was so attractive, so powerful, so Christ-like, I still do the things they did. Can you say that for yourself? Have you opened yourself up to community around you of Christians and found some ones that you go, man, I want to be like that guy, that gal. Getting in their home, seeing how they are, you know, I guess you could call it behind closed doors. That's some of the most impressive moments in my life. When I was in seminary in my 20s, And some of the guys in that church invited me over to just hang with their family, have a meal with them. 90% of probably what I do with my kids, I just saw somebody else do it. Because I was seeing Christ in that moment. I was seeing patience. I was seeing love. I, I was seeing teaching. And it was all happening right there with me just sitting on a couch next to them. So that's me being poured into, but then am I doing that now as somebody else in my life now that I'm pouring into? That's the imitation of Christ. It's a mark of spiritual growth. And Paul says that that's that's the example you guys were. And as these things build on, it wasn't just the imitation of Christ, the living it out, but it was the preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 8, moving into our third point. Spiritual growth is seen in declaration of Christ. He he writes, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Verse 7 means people can see it. Verse 8 means people can hear it. It's both and. We talked last week about your life attracts, the truth is what transforms them. Your life models it. The truth is going to be what explains it. And it's that back and forth. And you see these, this back and forth in two verses, back to back. Verse 7, it's what you lived. Verse 8, it's how you preached it. It's how it sounded forth from you. That word is, is uh, where we would get our English word echo, but we don't want to jam uh, what came around hundreds of years later in an English word. What did it mean back then to Paul? It was more of like a call, uh, the sound of a trumpet being blown. Far more than just an echo of a voice. It was also a sound associated with, with the rolling of thunder where you can hear that from however far away. That's what was happening in Thessalonica and it was going north, south, east, and west. It was going north into Europe and south into Greece and west into Rome and east into Asia Minor. And it was going so fast. What does he say? Your faith toward God has gone forth, verse 8, so that we have no need to say anything for they themselves report about us at the reception he had with you. He's saying, look, your testimony, believers, is so powerful, it's so potent, it's so real, that by the time I get to some of these cities, they've heard about you. That's amazing. So Acts 18, when he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and they come over and they got kicked out of Rome for preaching the gospel, maybe they were saying, hell yeah, 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 out there in Rome, we've already heard of this thing because we heard about this church in Thessalonica where people in the midst of affliction, could have happened that way, but Paul's not making this up when he's writing to them a year and a half later from Corinth. Saying, look, I'm visiting a lot of places. I talk to a lot of people. People come through here and we talk about how the church is growing and where the gospel's spreading. And you know what? Your name keeps coming up. And wouldn't that be awesome to be said about HBC? You know, uh, Lenore down to Gastonia, out, out to Valdez and, and out to Statesville. You know, when people show up, yeah, we heard about your church. That's why we're here now. And what have you heard about? Do you guys preach the word here? you make disciples here? The mission's going out. Good. Those are our values. We're glad that's what you heard of. And that's what people show up here majority of the time saying. It's about the gospel. It's about the disciples. It's about the mission going forward. And that's what we want to be known for. That's what this church was known for. The word of the Lord was sounding forth from them. Verse eight, and we don't even have to say anything, but Paul was so proud like a, like a parent when you kind of get that secondary information about your kid. You know, some of you parents have kids on the retreat and you'll hear by way of maybe one of the leaders, hey, th- thanks for sending your son or daughter. They were, you know, they were the one that was willing to uh, stay after and help clean up the room or I saw them praying with this younger ninth grader afterwards. You know, that's the kind of report he, this he's getting. He's like this proud parent that he, he hears about them and he says here in First Thessalonians, we don't even have to say anything, but if we skip over to his next letter that he wrote a few months later, Second Thessalonians 1.4, he does say, you know, I have to boast in you guys a little bit. Second Thessalonians 1.4, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, what for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Because you can't hide that when you're proud of a disciple when they're walking in the truth. And in this church in particular, they've been walking in the truth amidst tribulation and affliction. So that's the third mark. Spiritual growth is seen in the declaration of Christ. Now this all comes uh, to a close here in verses 9 and 10 in the anticipation of Christ. So there's these reports about this church and how it's growing and the gospel's going out. And he says, you know, they themselves, these other churches, believers everywhere, all around us, they're reporting the reception we had with you. And here he breaks down very simply, and hear this loud and clear. You want to know what it means to be converted? You hear that word, making converts to Christ? He gives a great definition here in 9 and 10. How you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. You know what that deals with? That deals with your life as a follower of Christ, past, present, and future. Past, you turn to God from idols. That there's a clear break with your past in the past, right? Right? you're not making people wonder still with your testimony. Yeah, I mean, I know they go to church and they've been, you know, they call themselves a Christian, but like I still see them kind of with the same old gang or they've went back to the same old ways. Did you really turn then and walk away from it? So that's a clean break with your past. That's part of conversion. But then it's Also present tense, to serve a living and true God. And as I mentioned before, that word for serve is the word for slave, that Christ is your Lord. That it's not just you could say in the past, yeah, there's a clean break with my old man. The old is gone, the new has come. In the present, somebody's looking at your life and you know what? They're not even really having to talk so much about your past because what's happening in the present is so awesome. You're serving out of love, that labor of love he talked about in verse 3, the living and true God. And yet, it doesn't even stop in the present because when they're around you and they talk about, man, you're going through some hard stuff. You're still serving the Lord. You're still loving the Lord. How are you doing it? Part three. Well, you're doing it because you're waiting for His Son from heaven. You, you look forward to the return of Christ. There's the future. There's where your hope is. Surprising that that matches up with verse three, your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost as if when Paul is talking about the converted life in 9 and 10, you turn to God from idols. That's faith. A work of faith. To serve a living and true God. That's a labor of love. To wait for His Son from heaven. That's, that's a steadfastness of hope in Christ. He, those same three things we saw in verse 3 that he celebrated God's work in them. A work of faith, a labor of love, steadfastness of hope in Christ... It's it's like he's bringing it back saying, you know when I remember how you came to the gospel and what I hear about you now? Faith, hope, and love, they're still right there. Your faith in what? Because it takes faith to turn, to believe this this path I'm on, this idol that I'm serving, this this fake God that I worship, I'm done with it. I repent and I turn to Christ. And now what do I do with my life? Well, I'm his slave. I'm his servant. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to love him. And what keeps you motivated? What keeps you going? He's coming back for me. Either I'm going to die and He's going to take me to heaven or He's going to come back before I die and He's going to rescue me from the wrath to come. So friend, this morning, if if you're in here and you don't know if you're in Christ, do you have a converted life? Do you have a converted life? Sometimes you have to simplify it down to those three things. Is there a clean break from your past? We're not talking about Christian perfectionism, that you don't sin anymore, but, but the lifestyle, what characterized you, that's done with. That the primary thing somebody would recognize and know about you is that you're in Christ. You live for Christ. And how do they prove it? Not just but why, what you said one time in the past and you wrote it in the front of your Bible and you closed it. No, your life is the living proof now. You serve a living God. And your work, your primary service to God is a labor of love. You do it because you love Him. But it's, it's, it's not just about the here and now. We could get maybe so, you know, I just got to work and serve. It. But really you're saying, I do this all because I got, I'm, I got something better coming. I'm working now, but I'm waiting. What are you waiting for? The return of Christ. He's going to rescue me. There's wrath coming. That's the converted life, friend. Has it happened to you? I mean, are those things welling up in your heart this morning if you're on the fence saying, you know what, I, I don't love that old life. Hearing that reminds me of why I turned away in the first place. And I do. Though I fail, I do love serving the Lord and I do look for His return. But if none of that's touching down anywhere, you've got to ask yourself, have you been saved? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you been told what the real gospel is, that it does require you to take up your cross and follow Him? You've got to lose your life to gain it, Christ said. Or have you just thought that the gospel is somehow about you getting getting just more. Christ just gets added into that which you already have. The stuff that already makes you happy in your life, Christ is there just to kind of tag it in there and make it better. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you're willing to walk away from all of it. Matthew 13, parable of a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. What's he do to get that treasure? In his joy, he sells every single thing he has. Because of the joy The joy of knowing Christ, eternal life. And here's the the greatest thing about being a Christian in in the days ahead. Listen, the only thing, however things go in our country and in the world, the only thing they won't be able to take from you, the true believer, is your joy. Because they were never able to give it to you. Do you get that? The world can't take a joy away from you that was never theirs to give you. But if you start losing things for the sake of Christ and your joy disappears, did you really have Him? Did you really have Him? You didn't. You had something else. You had something on the periphery of Christianity. But if things start being taken away, if you start losing things here and your joy is increasing, you know you got the real thing because all of it falls away. And you say, but I'm still left with Christ and I have joy in Him. Because I, whether you knew it when you signed up for it that way, you did sell, as much as you knew at that time, you sold everything you had to get him. And you wouldn't give him up for anything no matter what, right? That's a true Christian. But you got to, when the time comes and that happens, it's not something you go looking for necessarily, but when it happens, and you say, this is costing me something, but I'm, I'm still thankful in Christ. I still have love for Christ. I still have joy for Christ. I have joy in Christ. You got the real thing. And so, in the meantime, you work, you serve a living and true God, and that growth is seen in your anticipation of His return because He's going to rescue you from the wrath to come. You know, it's all about the return of Christ because it's always been about Christ from the beginning. It was first about Christ's coming. That's what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is Christ predicted. The Gospels are Christ revealed. The book of Acts is, is Christ preached. All the epistles are Christ explained. And then the book of Revelation is Christ anticipated. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. And so, why am I working? Why am I serving? I'm serving Christ. What am I waiting for? I'm waiting for Christ. So, I would have to, I don't know who wrote the great hymn, uh, you know, watching and waiting. You've got to change that lyric. We're working and waiting. Watching and waiting can be a dangerous thing. And it was here because Paul later is going to have to correct those ones that were just watching and waiting and not working. Idle. Hey, if this Christ is coming back, I don't got to do nothing. I'm just watching and waiting. No, Paul's description of a true believer, true spiritual growth is you're working. But listen, the the danger of that is we could go too far on one side and think we're working so much to bring the return of Christ that it's on our shoulders. Is it on our shoulders? No. He bore it. And he's going to come back and he's going to set it all to right. Okay? We work, but we're not working to bring his kingdom back. He already won it. He's just waiting, what? The kindness that the Lord is meant to lead us to repentance. He's giving more time. In the meantime, our lives, the work for Christ we do, that proves that we've been changed and it attracts people and we tell them. So we can work, but we're not working in the sense of, you know what, it's it's up for us to bring some Christian utopia to this planet. We work and we wait because he's coming. So we we stay busy with telling people about the gospel. One of the best conversations of the weekend was with this eighth grade girl that came up to me crying after the message about heaven. Not for her own sake, but for her lost friends. She wanted to know, I mean, is it really true? Like I I might get all this in heaven one day and the people that I love, these friends that I have, they're not going to go. I said, that's really true. So you pray for them. You either believe it or you don't, right? You either believe that he's coming back, raised from the dead, and rescuing the believers from the wrath to come, but what for the rest? Romans 2.5. It's the revelation of the righteous judgment of Christ. And that's what He's coming back to do. Whatever picture you have of the wrath of God, here's how it's described in Romans 2.5. It's His righteous judgment. Nobody will be able to sit in judgment of it because it's perfect righteousness when he comes back. Perfect judgment. Settling all accounts. Making all things right. And you have to be ready for that and we have to tell other people to be ready for that. That's why we're not just watching and waiting indifferent and idle, are we? We've got to tell people. And it starts with the church. I mean the opportunities we have around here in this room, in this place, with the equipping classes, with the retreats and the camps and Children's ministry and student ministry, how can we not be investing our lives here? What else are we supposed to be doing with our time? It's the best use of it. But you got to come, I mean, the more that this verse 10 grips you, there's something at stake here. Sure, joining youth ministry staff might cost you two hours on a Sunday night, but what could be gained in that kid's life? Eternity. Eternity is that worth it? It is. It is. And then, let alone within this church, the the needs we have here, we need more workers in children's ministry. Even if it's just holding a baby so a parent can sit in this room, teaching a class to five-year-olds, it's worth it. Are you willing to exchange your time for that? That's what it comes down to. Because it's ticking. I had a great conversation with a brother this week about just when, when you really understand the, the weightiness of eternity and, of, and seeing people you know, pass on, it hits you and you say, man, it just comes down to what am I doing with my time? Because that's the proof. What am I investing my life into? More down here or more for there? Nothing less than that. There's certainly more than that, but it's nothing less than that. And these these truths of the anticipation of Christ's return are what make us work while we wait. And uh, we're going to get into more of that as this letter goes on, but maybe that's just where we need to end this morning. In the waiting and the watching, are you working? I'm not asking, are you working to earn your salvation? If you're on Christ this morning... There's only one name under which we may be in heaven and earth by which we'll be saved, and it's in Christ. And it's His finished work on the cross that you can be saved by by trusting in Him today. So you're not working to earn anything. You're laboring in love for the good of others, for their growth in in Christ, and for them to hear the good news. It's worth it. So it just comes down to question. you Are going to do something about it? Staring us in the face. If we really anticipate, if we really want to imitate Christ, declare Christ, and suffer for Christ, we're going to do something about it. And we'll do it in the strength that he provides. Not on our own strength, but in the strength he provides us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its work to convict. We thank you that we can't even look to it and it gives us a reflection of our lives, of our willingness to suffer, our, our desire to share, our, share our life and share the gospel and in Christ await your return and that it be as real to us in this moment as we pray as anything else happening around us. Because Lord, we love you and we long to see you. And even as we, we sing and close this morning, it's an expression of our joy in the Holy Spirit to sing of you and sing of your gospel because we don't have any other hope outside of it. So even now as we close, would you close some issues in our hearts this morning to make right with you how we're using our time. Thank you for this church. Thank you it's a good church. It's a work of your grace. We're, we're thankful for your work of grace here. We we're, we're thank you for the gospel that is being taught At every age level and in every room in this building and outside of here, we're just thankful for that. But we want to see growth in our own lives in order to see it around us. So do that work we ask this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.